If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the horrible things that she ends up doing is drinking the bath water of one of the lepers in her care, and she describes um, her well, her biographer describes. Um, how she felt one of the scabs lodge in her throat and that catapulted her into a sort of ecstatic vision. That was Hetta Howes discussing medieval mysticism. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll hear from Hetta Howes, a medievalist at City, University of London, who was chosen as a BBC AHRC New Generation Thinker for 2017. In our April edition, she's written an article about medieval mystics, exploring some of the extreme and occasionally disturbing ways that people in the Middle Ages sought to get closer to God. And here for the podcast, she's expanded on that topic in an interview with our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman. How common were mystics in, in the medieval period? Was was religious fervour at this time um, unusual? So I think it would be a mistake to say there were mystics everywhere. Um, I think it can be um, tempting to portray it that way because there was something of a surge in the later Middle Ages. So all of a sudden there were more, particularly women, mystics springing up than had been before. Um, but of course, the most famous examples of those you can sort of count on on two hands, really. Um, so it's not as if they're kind of everywhere. But it is it is safe to say that something happened, I think, in the later Middle Ages that made it more common. And also, I think just news was spreading a bit more about uh, both men and women that were having visions or having experiences of God Um so, you know, I mean, women like Catherine of Siena um, 
and and anchoresses and various other women who are having these experiences are getting the word out a bit more. So um, sort of two things are happening. You're getting slightly more women kind of feeling this this ardor towards God due to developments in the Christian religion at the time. But you're also getting um, slightly better news and news about it, I suppose. The word is spreading. And have you been able to sort of pinpoint what it was in the later Middle Ages that, that increased the number of, of these mystics sort of being around? Or was it like you say, just that where people knew about them, they were sort of always there? So I think I think part of it is news, but I think also there is a shift um, sort of uh, from the 12th century onwards, really, in devotion in Christianity. So Christianity is sort of um, the predominant religion coming out of the Anglo-Saxon period right up to sort of the, um, you know, the Reformation, which sort of is one of the most famous examples of the the church splitting. But um, it shifts in focus. So in the Anglo-Saxon period, your images of God um, are tend to be quite fearsome and stern. Um, with some exceptions, but overall sort of quite a strong figure, the emphasis being on sort of his achievements um, and his sort of um, strength in the face of adversity. Whereas in the later Middle Ages, it becomes more about the suffering of Christ um, and and an emphasis on what he went through on behalf of mankind. So the art from the later Middle Ages is much more um, evocative and emotive. Um, the stories and narratives you get about Christ become um, more about the things that he went through. And I think in tandem with that, um, women start to see, well, men and women, but women particularly start to see a way of identifying more with Christ. I mean, just on a very basic level, a sort of slightly frightening, stern Old Testament God is slightly less relatable than a sort of human, uh, an emphasis on the human element of the Trinity, someone that, that people could sort of imagine themselves talking to or, or having a conversation with or, or watching in a certain um, experience. So I think sort of two things, a shift in in the way people are thinking about their religion um, and their personal religion, but also perhaps um, sort of more things being written down, um, better communication um, about things that were happening all over the world. So, you know, English uh, religious women hearing about Italian mystics, for example, which might not have happened so much a couple of hundred years before. Okay, and it seems to be sort of a more common thing with women. Why might women have been more attracted to mysticism than men? What was the appeal? Yeah, so it's kind of a new, a newer thing for women. I think sort of the um, older mystics that we hear about are, are often men. Um, and then in the sort of... Uh, particularly the 14th century, uh, 13th, 14th century, you get much more, um, many more examples of women being spoken about. Um, and it's partly because um, women are getting more access to uh, religious literature, but it's also partly to do with this shift, I think, which is that women um, were often spoken about in the Middle Ages as being more emotional, being more visual. So men are associated with reason and intellect, and women are associated with emotion, feeling and the flesh and the body. Um, and if kind of the shift in sort of talking and thinking about Christianity is towards a more human bodily Christ, then that opens up an avenue for women to connect a little bit more, I think, with that idea, um, because the sort of stern a uh, strong Old Testament God is much more to do with intellect and reason. Um, so I think it's sort of partly to do with that shift again. I mean, it's it's easy when talking about history, I think, to overemphasize turning points, but we can definitely see sort of um, 
a new kind of piety emerging at this time that seems to speak particularly to women, I think. Mm. I mean, some of the accounts of what women did and and what they experienced, you know, that in trying to get closer to God, uh, are pretty graphic and to like the twenty first century mind are a little bit repulsive. Um, did you want to kind of maybe outline some of the things that you found in in, in your research? Yeah, so I mean, two there's sort of two strands of this. There's sort of the revolting and the erotic. And I'll start with the revolting, but they do sort of overlap, interestingly. So a couple of really um, fascinating examples from the time would be um, Angelo Foligno, who was an Italian mystic um, born around 1248, we think died around 1309. Um, And she was up until a sort of, not conversion because she was already Christian, but until a sort of um, kind of turning more towards God. She was a sort of social climbing woman. She was a wife. She was a mother. She's quite preoccupied with worldly things. And then all of a sudden, um, in her sort of middle age, she seemed to have something happen, something changed, and she decided to devote herself entirely to God. Um, she's most famous for uh, caring for local lepers, um, which was which was a wonderful thing to be doing because lepers in the Middle Ages are, are really stigmatized and treated quite badly. Um, but one of the horrible things that she ends up doing is drinking the bath water of one of the lepers in her care. And she describes um, her, well, her biographer describes um, how she felt one of the scabs lodge in her throat and that catapulted her into a sort of ecstatic vision of God. So it's this quite bizarre to our minds idea that um, revulsion could lead to um, ecstasy and pleasure and connection with God. Um, And another very similar example is Catherine of Siena. And the logic of that is clearer in in her biographer's account because she's caring for a nun who has um, some quite bad wounds um, and is dying. And she doesn't, she's getting quite irritated by this nun and having to look after her. And the smell of the nun's wounds um, revolts her. And she thinks that's a sign from the devil. She should be kind of caring for this woman. And if she kind of is doing the right thing by God, she should be looking after her. And she shouldn't be disgusted by sort of the smell of the putrefying flesh. She should be, you know, you know, um, thinking nothing of it at all. So to try and counteract that, she decides to drink some of the pus from the wound. And again, she um, has an ecstatic vision um as a consequence and she says to her biographer that she never tasted anything sweeter or more exquisite than the pass from that wound which is bizarre to us of course um but makes a weird kind of sense um in terms of sort of trying to punish herself for for not for for kind of being revolted by this woman in pain this woman who was suffering in the same way that Christ was in pain on the cross and suffering and and needed care so there's that sort of revolting strand um and then weirdly linked to it is a slightly more erotic strand so the way that these experiences are often described is in quite sensual language um sort of the very fact that Catherine of Siena said that this this pass was sweet and exquisite. The language is quite sensual. Um, there's images of people imagining kissing Christ's wound in his side, um, of drinking that blood, um, and it being very pleasurable. Um, and I think part of this is is a sort of redirection of impulses. If you're living a holy life, you're not having sex, you're not um, kind of engaging in worldly pleasures. And those impulses still are existing, of course, because you're only human, um, but it's much better to direct them in a spiritual direction. So you get quite a lot of um, sort of spiritual instructors 
encouraging that kind of um, language and thinking because it's better to be thinking that way in terms of a religious experience than it is to be lusting after someone um, in, a, in a more sort of worldly, physical way. Mm. And we should probably apologise for anyone having their lunch <laughs> while you were... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's not one for lunchtime, this, is it? <laughs> no. Um, you mentioned that there were sort of spiritual advisors. So were there, there were sort of, sort of guidebooks, weren't there, to help women achieve this state of sort of ecstasy. Um, who, who was writing these books and, and, you know, where are they basing their information uh, on? So, I mean, almost universally they're written by men. With it, with um, I actually kind of think right now of a particular example. There are some anonymous writings that are not, uh, haven't yet been uh, made into editions, which sort of smaller works that are women advising other women. But the most famous examples are men writing for women, which is sort of interesting in itself, I think. Um, but they're being written often to very religious women so maybe anchoresses who are um enclosed women women who've devoted their entire lives to god but they start to get a wider readership um and sort of in their aftermath so they're sort of originally these guidebooks are targeted at quite a small audience um but they become more popular and and more women are reading them and more men are reading them um in terms of where they're getting their information they're using the bible um they're using um sort of church sermons um which which circulate quite a lot in the middle ages and also just their own imaginations a lot of the time uh, one of my favorite examples is elred of revo's um a rule of life for a recluse which was written in the 12th century and is um thought to be the first example of passion meditation which is a sort of guided spiritual experience where readers are encouraged to imagine themselves present at the crucifixion of Christ to imagine um, that they're sort of participating in or watching that event. Um, it's quite immersive experience. Um, but there are other much more practical elements of his guidebook too, like what, what women should eat and what, how many times they should pray. And his book is, is specifically written, he says, for his religious sister. Some people think it's his actual sister. Some people think he's speaking more metaphorically and it's um, an anchoress that he's known of who's asked for guidance. Um, so some of the instruction is very tailored towards a woman living an enclosed life rather than someone kind of a member of the laity out in the world um, but as I said it inspires other similar rule books and gets sort of circulated in manuscripts more and more so even if it has quite a narrow audience to begin with it becomes much more far-reaching by say uh, the 1400s. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What did the church feel about these mystics? I mean, how could you prove that somebody was actually experiencing these sorts of things and not sort of faking it just for attention? Well, you've hit on one of the key problems, actually, and and, and it was really worrying um, to church authorities to get this, that, that, that the visions might not be real and that people might be sort of um, 
idolizing or taking example from uh, men or women who who weren't actually experiencing um, visions from God, but were faking it or thought they were. Maybe they were mad. Um, and there were there were ways of telling this. So there were things that you had to prove that you could do. So it wasn't enough to just say you hadn't eaten um, for days. People had to be witness to the fact that you didn't need bodily food anymore and that that was because you had spiritual sustenance from God. So where, where one could get it proof, visions are trickier, of course, than watching whether or not someone's eating. How do you prove that a vision is a real vision? Um, and this was often down to sort of things like status, and um, who was on your side. So Catherine of Siena was quite a powerful woman in Italy anyway, and she had lots of supporters sort of local within the church. Um, so it was easier for her to get sanctification. Um, Marjorie Kemp, who's a mystic um, from England, um, who sort of wrote a book of her life in the 1430s, had a much harder time of it. Um, and most of her book, which recounts her religious life, is about her trying to convince people that what she's experiencing is real and isn't fake. Um, and some people believe her, and there are many examples in her book of um, quite influential religious figures that do believe in her. But she also is nearly burnt at the stake a couple of times for heresy, because, of course, it's very dangerous to go around saying that you're having conversations with God if you're not, because it could be the devil or you're kind of sort of um, trying to trick the church. So it's it's a real problem. Um, and, it, and it troubled a lot of figures. And actually, um, in the beginning of the 1400s, coinciding with Marjorie Kemp, Archbishop Arundel took this these concerns on board and made them into legislation so there were much there were many more restrictions on what kind of books could be written um uh, that were sort of va uh, validated by the church um to try and prevent a sort of sense of everyone saying that they were having these visions or experiences there was a sort of anxiety that it might become too widespread and too many people might be making claims that weren't true Mm. I mean, Marjorie Kemp's uh, an interesting character. She's one of my favourites, actually. She was just kind of just seems to cry all the time, um, and but she also seems to kind of qu kind of be quite irritating to those around her, um, which seems to be quite unusual compared to the kind of the respect and the sort of the reverence that other mystics are, are held in. Yes, and there's an interesting question here, um, which is that of course the book is written. Um, well, Marjorie dictates it to a priest. It's not written by her because she can't read or write, but it seems to be her account. Um, and there's a possibility, actually, that Marjorie is hamming up some of that um, in order to validate herself even more, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but if we follow through, has a logic. So this idea of the holy fool is quite important in the Middle Ages, that the more sort of... Um, the more you're mistreated on earth and the more you're misunderstood on earth as a representative of God, the richer your rewards will be in heaven. So there's almost a sense that that by ha that that there are so many people in Marjorie's book that seem really outrageously irritated by her and treat her quite badly, that that is sort of her doing almost kind of a purgatory on earth and that she knows that the more of this kind of mistreatment she gets, the more God will be pleased with her because she's sort of taking it and she's still carrying the message of God and she's still being vocal about her experiences that she's having. So there's there's some that would argue that some of this is um, quite performative. Having said that, the behaviour that she exhibits would have been 
quite disruptive. So if you're in a church service on a Sunday, um, as you usually are, and you're trying to kind of do your prayers and have your sort of religious time, and there's a woman there crying so loudly that you can't concentrate, that is genuinely quite irritating. And I think the trouble with Marjorie is that she refused to go and do her very fervent ardor elsewhere. So most women that um, had these kind of very strong religious experiences or, or felt the need to be closer to God tended to uh, either join convents or become anchoresses to sort of be on the outskirts of society in some way, sort of easier to deal with. Whereas Marjorie refused to do that. She's sort of having visions as if that are similar to those many anchoresses and nuns and convents are having, but she's out in the streets and she's trying to travel with other people on pilgrimage. Um, and pilgrimage for a lot of people was just fun. You know, it was important and part of the the sort of, their religion but it was also cultural like let's all go on a trip and and sort of visit these holy sites and and it will be an important spiritual experience but it will also be a chance to have a chat and a drink and Marjorie's there saying well we shouldn't be drinking and we shouldn't eat anything nice and we should only talk about God the entire time so you can see why people might have been frustrated with her <laughs> um, but you know I think so it She's playing up to that in her book and how much she genuinely was really making everyone cross. I mean, I can definitely see that the latter could be true. Yeah, yeah. Um, were these um, these women, were they sort of, did they have some sort of celebrity status almost? Did people come on pil pilgrimages to, to visit them and to, and to see them having these um, visions and things like that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, it was it was a real status symbol to have an anchoress in your town, for example. So I've mentioned that word a couple of times. And, and just to elaborate a little bit, an anchoress um, was someone who decided to live a life enclosed, literally. So there were sort of little structures built on the sides of churches, usually sometimes on bridges. Um, they were quite small. And Anchoresses would go into those and they would be bricked up after them. So the idea was you went in and you never came out. Um, and you had normally three windows in an anchor. So you, you could see into the church, so you could watch services, you could have a window to kind of get food in, and another window to greet passers by who at certain times of day in the week could come and ask your advice and meet you and get your blessing. So it's a sort of interesting liminal existence, sort of enclosed and locked away but also quite part of um the community um and people would come to sort of visit uh both anchorites which is the male version and anchoresses so julian of norwich is probably our most famous anchoress um in the uk and marjorie kemp famously went to visit her to try and get her validation because she knew that julian was very well respected and people believed in her and the vision she was having um, and she knew that if she went to see julian and julian sort of said, yes, I believe you, Marjorie, that would mean a lot, um, just sort of in, in popular and public opinion. Did she get it? Did she get her approval? Yes, she did. Well, she, well, according to Marjorie, she does. Julia never mentions Marjorie at all, but then she wouldn't because her book is just an account of her visions. It doesn't mention anybody else at all. Um, Marjorie tells us in the book that she um, did go and meet um, Julian and Julian um, sort of gave her encouragement and advice and validation, um, which which really boosts Marjorie at a time when she says she's having a tough time convincing others. Um, and there's actually been a, a really nice play put on um, this in the last couple of years, which imagines that meeting between Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp um, and how it might have gone, because they're both very different characters um, in their writing. Um, a lot of your research, um, you've sort of been focusing on 
the link between sort of fluids um, and mysticism and women at this time. Can you maybe just elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, so I got really interested um, initially in water um, because I kept noticing it kept popping up um, in these books written um, for women, whether that's by men or by women for other women um, on these sorts of topics. So guidebooks, passion meditations, that water seemed to be really significant. Um, And then as I was reading more, I noticed that often there were images of transformation within that. So water that turns into wine, blood that turns into water, honey, oil, milk, um, various different fluids used to describe crucially, usually the moment that Christ is dying on the cross. So you find that there's an in the references to liquid seem to intensify when religious authors are talking about um, that moment in Christian history or when women who are having visions describe seeing Christ's body. So the idea of drinking the water and blood from Christ's side. Angela Fellino says that um, if you can imagine yourself immersed in the wound in Christ's side, the further in you get, the more your spiritual knowledge will increase. So there's sort of a direct correlation between being sort of surrounded by Christ's bodily fluids and and having spiritual knowledge. Um, And my theory is that this is particularly... um, particularly attractive to women because women's bodies in the Middle Ages are conceptualized as much more liquid. Um, There's sort of this theory of the four humours in the Middle Ages, um, which are sort of four aspects of the body that should be in balance for good health. And women are supposed to be more sort of imbalanced and more liquid, according to medieval medicine. Um, And according to Aristotle, um, the sort of female baby is a sort of deficient, half-formed version of the male baby. It's kind of too weak to kind of create itself as a man. And so it's it's sort of born as a woman and then spends almost sort of this idea that women spend the rest of their lives sort of trying to um, cope with that disability almost. So the fact that we that women bleed once a month is a sort of attempt on the body's part to purge excess fluid that shouldn't really be in the body, but is in the body and needs to be got rid of. So there's this sense of a sort of sort of liquid, half-formed woman, (laughs) if you like. (laughs) (laughs) And that was seen as a negative thing. Yeah, very much so in medicine and um, theology. Um, It means that women are more emotional and they cry more. Um, They're sort of more sexually promiscuous because they can't contain themselves and they're sort of looking to get what they lack in men so there's sort of almost something in women's bodies because it because they're sort of deficient hopes that by uniting with men having sex with men they'll kind of leech away some of their strength and their heat so they're sort of almost sort of vampire woman kind of trying to make up for her bodily deficiencies um Having said that, the very fact that you get all these fluids cropping up in religious writing um, that is for women suggests a way of of sort of using that as a possibility, a potential for for communion with Christ, that maybe by thinking about their body as more liquid, um, women could identify more with the bleeding, sort of sweating body of Christ as he suffers in the Passion and the Crucifixion. I mean... There's a sort of link there that seems to be exploited, I think, in the accounts of women having visions. Um, the the wound in the side being a really interesting. If you if you kind of Google um, 
medieval images of the wound in Christ's side, it looks very much like um, a vagina. I mean, that's that's what the images look like. Often the sense that Christ's body is quite feminine. Um, breast milk is referred to a lot in in um, descriptions of Christ in visions that he's sort of leaking milk from his breast that that this that the devoted can ingest. So there's definitely something there, I think. That was Hetta Howells. You can read more from her in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Okay, well that's about all for today, but please do listen in on Monday when we'll be talking about how to make high-quality history documentaries with Lynn Novick. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.